following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Most of you are familiar with the great awakening evangelist, George Whitfield, a man who was used mightily by God. He was unusually gifted as a preacher, and even those who were not particularly interested in what Uh, George Whitfield had to say in the content of his sermons, they still wanted to come and listen to him preach because of his natural oratorical gifts. Benjamin Franklin, who loved and admired Whitfield and totally rejected his theology, he said this, he said of Whitfield, he is a good man and I love him. Every accent Every emphasis, every modulation of voice was so perfectly well-turned and well-placed that that without being interested in the subject, one could not help being pleased with the discourse, a pleasure of much the same kind with that received from an excellent piece of music. Sarah Edwards, the wife of Jonathan Edwards, she once wrote a letter to her brother about Whitfield's preaching, and she wrote this, he is a born orator. You have already heard of his deep-toned yet clear and melodious voice. Oh, it is perfect music to listen to that alone. You remember that David Hume thought it worth going 20 miles to hear him speak And Garrick, who was an actor who envied Whitfield's gifts, said he could move men to tears in pronouncing the word Mesopotamia. It is truly wonderful to see what a spell this preacher often casts over an audience by proclaiming the simplest truths of the Bible. A prejudiced person I know might say that this is all a theatrical artifice and display but not so will anyone think who has seen and known him. He is a very devout and godly man, and his only aim seems to be to reach and influence men the best way. He speaks from the heart all aglow with love and pours out a torrent of eloquence, which is almost irresistible. Now, there are many great preachers that God has used throughout the history of the church. He gives some men particularly unique oratory gifts and abilities to communicate in ways that captivate the masses. They communicate not only to the mind, but also to the heart. And through their preaching, the Lord has been pleased to bring many sons to glory. It's it's often these great men that we tend to pay particular attention to amongst Christians, and, and sometimes even amongst those who are not. Like we saw with Whitfield, these men often become celebrities. People want to meet them and spend time with them and go to conferences where they are preaching and watch all of their videos and, and download all of their sermons and even tell their pastors, thank you for that sermon, pastor. Have you heard my favorite celebrity preacher's sermon on that passage? It's really good. It really blesses our souls to hear those things, keeps us humble. But see, God doesn't just use men who have superior oratory skills. 
There are many pastors who have very little confidence in their ability to preach. Nor do they have a unique eloquence in their words and their turns of phrase. Writing about the preaching of the intellectual giant of the faith, the wife of, or excuse me, the husband of Sarah Edwards, who I just quoted before, Jonathan Edwards. A man named Stephen West wrote this about him. He had no studied varieties of his voice and no strong emphasis. He scarcely gestured or even moved. And he made no attempt by the elegance of his style or the beauty of his pictures to gratify the taste and fascinate the imagination. But if you mean by eloquence the power of presenting an important truth before an audience with overwhelming weight of argument and with such intenseness of feeling that the whole soul of the speaker is thrown into every part of the conception and delivery so that the solemn attention of the whole audience is riveted from the beginning to the close and impressions are left that cannot be effaced. Mr. Edwards was the most eloquent man I had ever heard speak. Some have commented that often Edwards, in the middle of his sermon, he would grow tired from standing, and so he would just simply slump over a bit and rest his head into his hand, and he would read from his notes as everyone listened. And yet the Lord used him in a mighty way, also during the Great Awakenings. Now, of course, as the principal ordinary means of grace, preaching is supremely important in the life of the church. Honest preachers will all admit that we have good and bad sermons, but if our spiritual gifts truly are as we assume them to be, we ought to most frequently be providing helpful insights from the Word of God that inspires uh, further study and deeper devotion from the hearers of the Word. Now, everything we do won't be a home run. But if we don't at least have a few consistent base hits, perhaps we need to consider whether or not pulpit ministry is our best fit. In a day where many churches are without a pastor, it's easy to overlook serious indicators that a man may not be fit for preaching at all. This is not to say anything of a man's godliness or his pursuit of holiness or his understanding and love for the scriptures. It's not even a question of man's zeal for preaching and teaching. However, many church leaders often are unwilling to tell young men who aspire to the ministry that they just aren't gifted preachers. Churches must be discerning when sending men to seminary and and even their professors should be honest with men about whether or not they should consider other areas of service and ministry. The the assumption is often that saying these kinds of things is harsh and, and overly critical Or that a man may be a poor preacher or teacher now, but given enough time, he will improve. And perhaps he will. But sometimes it's difficult to tell someone they are not what they assume themselves to be. However, the all-too-common wreckage of a failed ministry is far worse than hurt feelings and a call to serious self-assessment. There are men who have a sense of their own oratory skills and realize they're not what they want to be or what they should be to deliver the most important message in the world. Of course, there are men who underestimate themselves. They never have confidence in their preaching. And the the thought that it is of any great usefulness to the people of God, when in actuality it is, 
while others know and everyone else also knows that he is of great use, while there are others who think they are of great use, but everyone knows that he's no preacher at all. But this doesn't mean that God can't or won't use them in other areas of ministry, even as a pastor, but perhaps not one who is regularly standing in the pulpit. Being apt to teach, which is a requirement for an overseer, does not necessarily mean that a man is required to have a regular pulpit ministry. But what if the Lord told a man, even though he may assess of himself, I'm not gifted, I can't do this, I'm no George Whitfield, and I'm not even a Jonathan Edwards. I am a nobody and I don't have this gift. But what if the Lord himself told a man, you will do this? In our day, we emphasize a man's inner calling, that is his desire to preach the word of God, and also a man's outward calling, a public affirmation from those to whom he has preached that he has a gift in this particular work. Uh, We don't hear an audible voice from God. He doesn't visit us in a burning bush to give us our marching orders. And as we turn our focus once again to the book of Exodus, we see God doing just that for Moses. And yet, he continues to consider himself, to consider what God is calling him to, and he says, not me. You'll recall that so far we've looked at three of Moses' objections to the Lord as to why he is not the man to go back to Egypt and confront Pharaoh to let the Israelites go from slavery that they have endured for over 400 years. Remember, God spoke to Moses from the burning bush, telling him, I'm sending you to Egypt. Go back there, speak to the elders, and then go speak to Pharaoh. You will set my people free. And then Moses asked in chapter 3 in verse 11, who am I? And then in verse 13, he asked, who are you? And then in chapter 4 in verse 1, he said, they will not believe me. They will not listen to my voice. And so these have been the three objections so far. And God has answered each of them. To who am I? The Lord says, it doesn't matter who you are. I am calling you to go and do this. Who are you? Moses asked. And the Lord said, I am the I am. But what about them? What if I what if I go to Egypt and and the elders don't listen to me? And the angel of the Lord said, They'll listen to you, and here are some signs. And so now we arrive at Moses' two final objections. I can't and I won't. I don't have the the oratorical skills. I'm not eloquent of speech. I'm not a great preacher. I'm not a great speaker. I can't think on my feet. I can't do what you want me to do. I, I, I will make a mess of it. So I'm not going to do it. And you can safely assume that when man pushes back against God, things never seem to go his way. So let's read beginning in verse 10 of Exodus 4. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, 
either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send somewhere else. And then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff, with which you shall do the signs. Now, of course, we've said all along, we can understand somewhat the hesitation of Moses. He's 80 years old. He's been given this enormous task, and it seems impossible But here we are at the middle of his argument with God and we come to the end of his argument with God. And after a while, after all of these objections, as I read this, I am a little embarrassed for Moses. It's sort of one of those times, perhaps you've been in a room when a parent corrects their child and the child starts to talk back and you're wondering how far they're going to push it and you're just praying for them, don't do it. Do not say what I think you're gonna, and they do it anyway. And you just back up because you don't wanna get hit in the crossfire. I sort of get that sense with Moses here. He keeps pushing and he keeps pushing and the Lord keeps telling him, why, why are you arguing? Do you know who I am? Do you know who you're talking to? And so it gets to this place where we see for the first time in the Bible that it says God's anger is kindled toward one individual. Of course, we see, we see the anger of God uh, prior to this in the book of Genesis, uh, but the first time that God expresses outrightly his anger toward one person, and it is here with Moses. Now in verses 10 through 12, Moses directly tells the Lord, I'm not capable of doing what you're asking of me. He acknowledges that the plan sounds good. He knows it's important, but Lord, I can't carry it out. And Moses claims that the problem is that he's not eloquent. I'm not a good speaker. I'm not a preacher. And we we can understand why Moses may have been hesitant to take on this diplomatic message. It requires a lot of high-pressure speaking in front of the most important man in the world at that time. He was to speak to this man in the most impressive kingdom on the earth, and so he felt unqualified and in some way that is understandable. It would require him to think on his feet. It would require him to be ready for whatever Pharaoh would throw at him. And of course, let us not forget, his life could be on the line. However, it does become a bit difficult to sympathize with Moses too much when he says, I 
I'm not good. I'm not good at arguing with people. I'm not good at speaking with people. I'm not good at this speech thing. But what is he doing here all along? He's arguing with the God of the universe. He found his voice to argue with God who created him. So how would he be unable to speak to Pharaoh? Does he fear man more than he fears God? Now, scholars have debated and discussed the true meaning behind Moses' assertion here. Some believe that this is a simple act of politeness, a Middle Eastern tradition of exaggerated humility. This could be seen in the way of declining an invitation while still appearing to be gracious. It's like when maybe you go out to a restaurant with a friend and the check comes and your, your friend grabs the bill and in your mind and in your heart you're thinking, awesome, go ahead. <laughs> but what do you say out loud? Oh, let me get that. I, I was, I was going to pay for that. And then there's this back and forth, and then maybe in the end you say, well, just l- let me leave the tip at least. And so maybe it's Moses just following this customary way of communicating, assuming he would get a little back and forth with God, and he could negotiate to appear humble for such a great task. But I don't think that's what's going on here. That is one suggestion. Others believe that Moses' reluctance to go before Pharaoh is because of his lack of self-confidence, or maybe he's just making excuses for not wanting to take on such a huge responsibility. He, he is an 80-year-old man at this point. He has a very simple way of life. He has his wife. He has his family. Why would he want to go and do this? In verse 10, Moses says that he is not a skilled speaker, and that has not changed even after receiving the message from God that he was to speak. I kind of think that verse is a bit funny, because how long has he been speaking to God? And he said, Ever, even since you started speaking to me, I haven't gotten any better. Well, that was like 10 minutes ago, Moses. But remember, God told him, I will be with you, and here is what is going to happen. The omniscient God of all the universe laid it out for Moses from start to finish, and yet he still claims that he's unable to follow through. There are others who conclude that Moses had difficulty with the language. It's possible that maybe he had trouble speaking Hebrew to the Israelites because he didn't grow up speaking Hebrew in Pharaoh's household. Alternatively, he may have found it difficult to speak the Egyptian language to Pharaoh since he'd been living in Midian for the past 40 years. It's also possible that he had a genuine physical speech impediment, such as a stammer, made it difficult for him to communicate effectively. Many scholars have suggested this, and some medieval Jewish interpreters believe that Moses was born with a speech defect. The Midrash document, Exodus Rabbah, claims that Moses accidentally burned his mouth with a coal when he was young, which caused him to have difficulty speaking. In verse 10, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, which is the Septuagint, uses a word that describes Moses, uh, a word to describe Moses that is translated as slow of speech or weak speech or having an impediment in one's speech. And so perhaps Moses did have a speech impediment. Maybe he stuttered 
or maybe his way of speaking was confusing and jumbled. He said himself, I am slow of speech and of tongue. Literally, it means there is a a heaviness or a weight on his tongue. So he's saying he has a heavy tongue and as a result is slow in speech. And so the same two words that can be translated as heavy speech are also used together elsewhere in Ezekiel 3 to describe a people who spoke a different language than Ezekiel and he could not understand. And so the language was unintelligible to him. And so this lends support to the idea that Moses may have had a physical speech impediment. But we do not have enough information into uh, what this is in the text to draw a firm conclusion. And so maybe, maybe it's best that we don't know. If God, think about this, if God told Moses there was nothing wrong with him at all, some of us might conclude that any weakness would prohibit us from doing what God calls us to do. We must be without hindrance whatsoever. But likewise, if God said, Moses, don't worry about it, I will heal you, then we'd have the mistaken idea that we are unable to fulfill our calling unless God heals us from our weaknesses and our deformities and our infirmaries. So in the end, It's safe to conclude that God doesn't want us to know exactly what it was that made Moses hesitant here with regard to his speech. We can give him the benefit of the doubt. We could say he wasn't putting on a show of false humility, but he really believed he had a problem here and that what he saw before him seemed to be an insurmountable obstacle. Lord, you know I have a problem. I can't do this. Pharaoh is the most powerful man in the world. I am slow of tongue. I have a problem. I cannot think on my feet. I won't know what to say. I don't know how I will even say it. I can't do this, Lord. Have you ever heard of imposter syndrome? It is defined as an anxiety that stems from having an internal sense that you are an imposter in whatever you're doing, despite being competent and high-performing in your outward actions. A lot of academics, scholars, admit to struggling with this. It's an intimidating thing to be someone who others look at as an expert in a particular field or as having answers to questions because it's, it's your area that you have studied and worked in for many years, but you know all the things that you don't know, and in the end, you feel like a fraud. You feel like a phony. Many pastors struggle with this. And I'm sure we could go through all the different fields that all of us work in and identify things that make us think that maybe we are imposters. But the difference between us having a sense of imposter syndrome and Moses is that here he is receiving a direct commission by God, speaking to him clearly and unambiguously and telling him all along that he is going to work it out in a way that it will all come to pass just as he has laid out. And so we can understand the Lord's response to Moses. Look again at verse 11. He says, who has made man's mouth? Does this remind you of uh, when the Lord spoke to Job? Who are you, O man, to question me? It's the same kind of thing. Who has made man's mouth? Now, of course, it's rhetorical, but God is saying, Moses, I made you. 
I know what you are. I know who you are. I know more about you than you know about yourself. I created you. I designed you. Whatever your weaknesses, whatever your inabilities are, I know. I am your creator. So tell me, Moses, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, all of us have things about ourselves that we wish were different. And of course, there are things, there are some things about our lives that are as a result of the fall that we should wish were different. And we should ask God to help us with. Think of a hot temper or angry outbursts or a judgmental heart and a critical spirit or an unwillingness to forgive and a a tendency to store up wrath in our hearts leading to bitterness and a hatred for others or unnatural desires, or lying tongues. There are, there are so many different things that we, we could mention that are not what God has in mind here. Those are sinful areas of our lives that need to be sanctified and th- within which we should be asking the Holy Spirit to help us. No, what the Lord has in mind here are things that we cannot change, things that are immutable. The color of our skin, the shape of our nose, the color of our eyes, a lack of athletic ability, our hair falling out, our skin wrinkling, our knees popping, not being able to see or hear very well at all, not being able to speak well at all. Whatever it is, we are prone to think, I wish this was different. But this is God teaching us what David so beautifully wrote in Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. It was the Lord who made the skin in which you live. He gave you the shape of your nose. He provided the color for your eyes. He put the hairs in your head. He formed the whole body in which you live. Now, of course, the entire body, the entire person is plagued with the results of the fall. Our our bodies endure the curse in many ways, but in a very real way, we have to remember that even though these kinds of things are as a result of the fall, and we have imperfections and inabilities and infirmities, it's because that's what God has designed for us in his infinite wisdom. Isn't that a wonderful reminder of the value of life? We are created in God's image and we should remember that. And not just us as the people of God, but every human being that has ever been created. Whether it's an unborn baby in the womb of her mother, whether it's a beautiful child with an extra chromosome, whether it's a teenager with autism, whether it's an adult with cerebral palsy, whether it's an elderly person confined to a wheelchair, whether we have great health or abilities or not, life is all valuable to God and so it should all be valuable to us. It is a wicked, evil, disastrous notion that we should ever conclude that a person is too sick or too deformed to live so we should just end their life. Now, sadly, 
that is beginning to be an acceptable response to terminal illnesses or birth defects all across the Western world with nations like Canada and Great Britain now utilizing the strong arm of the government to not only make provision for assisted suicide, but in numerous instances not allowing families to utilize life-saving measures to preserve the life of their loved ones if a committee determines that they, no, they are no longer worth the expense of government-funded health care. Abortion and euthanasia are unmitigated evils that Christians must oppose in every circumstance. Now likewise, it is a complete rejection of God's design that we would ever affirm the notion that a person is born in the wrong body. And so we should provide them with the resources and the support to mutilate their bodies to conform to what they want to pretend they are. We have normalized what the world has always known as not a matter of God making a mistake, but mankind being severely mentally ill and beholden to perverse and wicked desires. And so brothers and sisters, we must be unequivocal in our affirmation that God made us to be who we are and what we are, and no matter how the world wants to pretend like we can change that, we can't. We are what we are created to be. That's exactly what he's telling Moses. Moses, don't forget. If you're mute, if you're deaf, if you're blind, or if you are all three, I made you that way and it is for my purposes. You cannot change that, but I am still going to use you in the ways that I have determined I'm going to use you. And then... We see what we've seen several times at this point in verse 12. God says, now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. You see, yeah, Moses, maybe you do have this problem. Maybe you aren't good at speaking. Maybe you have a, a stutter, a stammer. Maybe your, your tongue gets all jumbled up in your mouth and you can't even form the words. But listen to me, Moses. I created you, I know you, I'm going to go and I'm, he says, I'm gonna put the words in your mouth. He's been so patient with Moses. This is his, his fourth objection. He's reminded him all throughout these objections, he will not go alone. He has the help of the Lord. I will tell you where to go. I will tell you who to talk to. I will tell you what to say. I will tell you how to say it. And I will tell you even what their response is going to be before they respond. That's a pretty amazing promise from God, isn't it? Imagine if you had a direct promise from God every time you had to go have a difficult conversation with someone. Wouldn't that be great? Now, we assume we'd be able to tackle it with complete and total confidence, but I think probably all of us are a lot more like Moses than we'd like to admit. The Lord provides many promises in Scripture that we're prone to forget or that we simply don't believe. We might think that we'd respond differently from Moses if we were talking to the angel of the Lord in a burning bush, but let's not kid ourselves. We all have some fear of man. We all have some distrust of the Lord's promises. We all think someone else is better suited for what God calls us to do. And so we must ask the Lord to help us. 
We need the help of the Holy Spirit to remember and believe the promises of God. Or we will find ourselves just like Moses, arguing with God and making excuses for why we can't do what he has commanded us to do. But we know, we know we shouldn't fear. We know we shouldn't shy away. We know we shouldn't pull back. God has proven himself time and time and time again in the scriptures, throughout history, and in our own lives. We need to be reminded that the Lord gifts those he calls to fulfill his purposes. But too bad Moses didn't have this sorted out in his mind. And so look at verse 13. He has this fifth and final argument for God. He said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. He said, I can't do it. And now he's saying, I won't do it. But at this point, he's out of excuses. Again, first it was, who am I that I should go? And then it was, who are you? Who am I going to tell them sent me? And then, what if I go and they don't listen to me? And then, I can't speak. My my tongue is heavy and I'm not eloquent. He's just piling on the excuses. So finally, what does he say? Lord, I just don't want to do this. Pick someone else. I'm not your man. God's response was not what Moses wanted, however. First part of verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. He has been patient. He has answered his questions. He's given him plenty of opportunities to submit himself to the inevitable. But the Lord's patience ran out. John Calvin commented on this text, writing, This over-anxious caution from Moses is deservedly condemned, although it may have some admixture of virtue. Because whatever difficulty we encounter, this ought to be a significant encouragement to us that as often as God chooses men as his ministers, although they are in themselves good for nothing, he forms and prepares them for their work. And so Moses' self-assessment wasn't wrong. His arguments make sense. And we would probably say many of the same things. But when God is with you, when God is preparing you, when God is paving the way, there is nothing to fear. So yes, we may be good for nothing, but good for nothing is good enough for God to use to fulfill his purposes in just the way he designed. Now, notice something else here. Even though Moses kindled the anger of the Lord, he still provides for Moses. Isn't that how God is with his children? We are like that with our children, but not to the same extent, unfortunately. Even though they may do things we don't like, they may irritate us sometimes. They, they may sin against their siblings. They don't listen sometimes. Sometimes they even lie. They're, they're, they're just little versions of us, and we don't like that. But we still love them, and we still want what's best for them, and we, we still want them to carry out things the way that we've asked them to do, and we still provide for them all along the way. And so we see that with God here working with Moses. Look again, verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. 
You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. And so the Lord gives him his brother Aaron, which we will learn later on. You know the story. That's a mixed blessing, right? It's not all wonderful from there on with Aaron. But God is saying, Moses, I am not happy with you, but I'm still going to give you two things, your brother Aaron and a staff. Aaron can do the talking. You're going to tell him what to say. The staff will be your protection. It will be a symbol of identification. and It will be what you use to do the signs that I have shown you. Remember the signs that we looked at last time. You see, the Lord doesn't just call us, but he also equips us. He gives us gifts to use. He gives us minds to think through the things that we're called to do. He gives us tools and resources that are necessary to carry it out. He gives us hearts that care about the task that is before us. He gives us everything that we need. Now, at the moment, of course, we feel ill-equipped, but in his timing, he does it. We have to remember that. Perhaps there's something you have to do in your life and you keep thinking, how could it be that the Lord would want this for me? I'm not the right person for this job. Maybe it's something at the job you're in or an important task that you've been putting off or a hard conversation that you don't want to have or or sharing the gospel with someone that you know. You think, who am I? What if they don't believe me? What if they laugh me out of the room? What if I fail? What will I do? I don't even have the right resources to do it. I'm I'm not equipped. But brothers and sisters, instead of making excuses like Moses, we need to remind ourselves, this is what God wants me to do out of obedience. So if I don't do it, I'm being disobedient and rejecting his call on my life. Now, you might think, well, pastor, that's easy for you to say. You're a pastor. You study the word of God all week. You get time to pray. You get to see the work of God in the lives of his people. Of course, you're confident in God's calling in your life. If I was doing what you're doing, I'd be a much more confident Christian and a far more obedient Christian because my entire life would be about doing God's commands and it's right at the heart of his purpose for the church. You might think that, And if you do think that, I want to tell you, you are wrong. If you think pastors don't question whether or not they're really called and equipped to do what we do, you have too high a view of us. There are times when things are so challenging, there are issues that come up in the church that are so painful and difficult to work through that we are sometimes at a complete loss as to what to do. And it's easy to get to a place where we think, maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I should be doing something else. And we have to remind ourselves, this is what God has called you to do. Don't walk away from it. Don't disobey the Lord. Don't operate out of a place of fear. The Lord is with you. The Lord is providing. I've been in situations where I felt just like Moses. Lord, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to say here? I don't have the word. And in those times, maybe he provides an Aaron or maybe he puts words in our mouth. They might not be too eloquent, but 
In that moment, I can pray to the Lord and say, Lord, help me know what to say. And he will do it. Brothers and sisters, we can underestimate ourselves all day, but never underestimate God. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 10. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone talking to them about the gospel? And maybe at some point in that conversation or after you think, well, that was pretty good. I don't even know where that came from. I just started talking and I was quoting scripture and I was remembering all these wonderful things that I could tell them from, from sermons I've heard and books I've read and the Bible that I've memorized. It was a wonderful conversation. I don't know how I did that. But this is it right here. The spirit of your father speaking through you. Don't underestimate the Lord. And, and, and whatever our abilities are, we often wish we, we had someone else's abilities. Ah, but she's so musical, or he's so good with people, or he can talk to anybody, or, or she's so smart, or he's so athletic, they have so many connections, he's so good with money. Whatever it is, we often wish that we had someone else's abilities, and we often wish that we had someone else's calling in life, but what really matters though? Is it your gifts that matter, or is it God's help in whatever he has given us to do? Is it human abilities or is it divine assistance? Will you serve God with whatever he has given you? That's the question. The Lord tells us what he told Moses. Be faithful and I will provide a way. The reality of all of this is this is a precursor to what we see later in the Bible. And really all of it is a glimpse of the bigger picture of God's plan of redemption for all mankind. The Lord Jesus could have come into the world knowing what he was set to accomplish and yet said, who am I? They won't believe me. They won't listen to me. I'm not going to be able to do this. Look to pick someone else. Remember this, we have ideas we, we tend to conjure up in our minds about well, maybe, maybe it was obvious who Jesus was. Maybe everyone would have recognized all through his life that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. His own brothers didn't even realize it, right? He, there, was, there was nothing particularly magnificent about his appearance at all. There was nothing special about how he looked. It was simply about his way of life as he obeyed the Father to perfection day after day. So it, it, very, could have, it, it very much could have easily been Jesus saying, I, I'm not gonna be able to do this. I'm not the right man for the judge. There's nothing about me that people would look at and say, we need to follow this man. But instead, what do we see? With his face set like flint on the objective ahead, he was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. The Son of God didn't say no. He didn't argue. He didn't try to find a way out. He was faithful to the end. So think how different Jesus is from Moses. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's sweating drops of blood, praying to the Father. What does he say? 
If there is any other way, Father, please take this cup from me. Nevertheless, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Brothers and sisters, is that our prayer? When God calls us to do something like he has called Moses to do and we say it's challenging, it's difficult, I don't feel equipped, I don't feel capable, what do we say to the Lord? Do we say, I can't do it and I won't do it? Or do we say, not my will, Father, but yours be done? Now, friend, if you do not know Christ, I want you to know that I recognize that you have a lot of questions about your life. I think I've shared this before, but it's so telling and important. There was an interview with the quarterback, Tom Brady, several years ago, and he was being asked about his life, and he had this to say. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I love playing football and I love being quarterback for this team, but at the same time, I think there are a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. Now, friend, you may have some things in your life and they may be in order and you may think that with that you're going to make it through, but I'm certain that with an honest assessment, you too would conclude with Tom Brady, there are a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. I'm not gonna lie to you and tell you that if you become a Christian that everything magically gets better and you feel good about your life every day and you never question anything, that's not true. But what is true is that you don't have to worry about your future. You don't have to worry about tomorrow because the Lord's plans are greater than our plans and he works everything out for the good of his children and for his glory. When you are a child of God, When you have placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and everlasting life, he is for you, 100% irrevocably for you, and that will never change. And so you can live with hope, you can live with purpose, you can live with meaning, You can live with and for the one who created you just as you are, who gives you all that you have, and who calls you to a greater life and future than anything you could hope or imagine. And so even when things come up in your life and you know you have to go through and toward and you say, I don't know how I'm going to do it, in the Lord we have this promise. He is with you. He is equipping you. He will give you all that you need. And so friend, look to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Trust in him that he will do all that he does for your good. He calls you to trust him, to love him, to praise him, to serve him, and to give all of your life for his purposes. And his purposes for us with our lisping, stammering tongues, just like Moses. You may never be a George Whitfield. You may never be a Jonathan Edwards. You may not ever even be a Moses, but you are who you are. You are who God created you to be with the gifts that you have. Don't squander them. Use them 
in the way that God intends for his glory and trust that he will give you all that you need to accomplish the purposes to which he calls you. And even when we see our own weaknesses and frailty, and even though we may approach it all with trepidation, the Lord is strong and he is for those who are his. Look to Christ and truly live. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you once again for this wonderful Lord's Day. We're grateful for every opportunity we have as your people to gather together and to be reminded from your word who you are, what you have done, and what you are doing. And so, Lord, we pray tonight that you help us to trust you, to trust that when you call us to do what you call us to do, that you will not leave us, you will not forsake us, that you will see it through to the end, that you will equip us with the tools that are needed, you will give us the resources that must be provided, you will put the words in our mouths, you will put strength under our feet, you will use our hands and our bodies for your purposes to bring about all that you have determined before the foundations of the world to come to pass that you would be glorified, that your church would be built up and strengthened and expanded across all the earth. And so we pray, Lord, that you help us to be more faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting you, that we not say, Lord, I can't and I won't, but rather we might say with our whole heart, not my will, O Lord, but yours be done. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.